0: The Peter Schiff Show. Based on the reports that have been coming in from around the world, it seems like the coronavirus is likely to be a bigger deal than I originally thought when I first heard about the virus. And in fact, when the markets were initially selling off, it was my feeling that the real reason for the sell off was not the coronavirus, that in fact, the coronavirus was simply providing an excuse to sell a market that was going to go down anyway. Once we finally delivered on the news of a phase one trade deal with China, I think the market was primed for a sell-off and we got one. But kind of ironically, as the bad news came out, it actually became good news for the U.S. stock market. And people started buying the U.S. stocks because of the coronavirus, even though they're talking about how this could you know, impact global GDP and how this could create problems, as far as the market is concerned, this is all good news because all this means more liquidity, central banks easing. And in fact, that is exactly what has already happened, except the new easing is taking place for now outside the United States, particularly in China, But all this new money created by China is flowing into dollars. Uh, The dollar is up about 3%. Dollar index now this year, we're above 99 in the dollar index. But a lot of it went into U.S. stocks, which last week made new all-time record highs. In fact, I think that but for the coronavirus, the U.S. stock market would still be selling off. But because of the central bank stimulus... That has been the result of fears over the coronavirus that's actually benefited not only the U.S. dollar, but the the U.S. stock market. And another part of the irony is I think that initially a lot of the traders had the same view that I did, that the thing would blow over, that the scare was overblown, and that ultimately the decline was a buying opportunity because the market was overreacting, but in reality, it seems like the current threat from the coronavirus is actually larger than a lot of people probably thought when the news first broke. Yet the market has rallied anyway, not because it turned out that there was nothing to worry about, but because there was actually more to worry about than people thought, which brought the central banks into play. But, you know, this whole idea that because The coronavirus is going to slow down economic activity because there is the potential for reduced economic output. What if workers don't show up? The factories are empty, and so production slows down. There's less activity. People stay at home because they're afraid of getting sick, or if more people get sick so they don't go to work, both because they're sick or because they don't want to infect uh, their coworkers. And so let's say the world ends up producing less stuff there are fewer goods and services being produced in a market where everybody is hunkered down because of this you know deadly virus that becomes a pandemic why would the federal reserve respond or why would any central bank respond to that by printing money how does printing more money solve that problem It doesn't. In fact, it actually exacerbates it. But, you know, everybody looks at central bankers as if they've got the solution to every problem. They don't. They don't have the magic wand. They just have a printing press. And all that creates is inflation. Now, sometimes the illusion that inflation creates can look like a magic wand until the illusion wears off. But really, all this new money printing is doing is pushing up stock prices, although I'll get to the gold market a little bit later, which is now above 1600 We closed above 1600 for the first time this year. Uh, and, uh, and so that is really where money should be flowing because of what the central banks are doing. But none of this is going to help the economy. In fact, if the central bankers were really going to do the right thing, the appropriate response would be to drain liquidity from the markets, not supply even more. You know, if you go back to the 1913 Federal Reserve Act, one of the main reasons that that act uh, was passed into law, signed by the president, right, enacted by Congress, it was supposed to provide the U.S. economy with an elastic money supply. Now, you might wonder, what the hell does that mean? I mean, I never hear anything about elastic money supply. Well, you don't hear about it now, but that's what they were talking about back in 1913. Apparently, we didn't have enough elasticity in the money supply, and the Fed was going to create it. But what they meant by an elastic money supply was a money supply that expanded and contracted along with the market, along with the economy, not the stock market, but the actual economy. So, the idea was as the economy expanded, and if there was more economic activity, more production, more consumption, that the Federal Reserve would increase the money supply along with that increased economic activity, and that would kind of make sure we had enough additional money in the system to finance the extra transactions, and that could all be done at stable prices, right? Because otherwise, if we had an increase in economic activity, and we didn't have an increase in the money supply, well, prices might fall too much, and you know they wanted stable prices, and an elastic money supply was going to uh, supply that. In addition, or on the other side, if we had a weakening economy, right, where business was contracting, where there was less production, less consumption, the Federal Reserve would remove liquidity. The money supply would shrink in order to prevent prices from rising, right? So we'd have stability in, in prices because if you had the supply of goods and services going down, but the money supply didn't go down, right well then you wouldn't have enough goods you'd have more money and so prices would go up and again the whole idea was this is supposed to smooth out the business cycle because we were going to have a money supply that was elastic enough to move with the business cycle as the economy expanded the Fed would increase the supply of money into the economy as the economy contracted the Fed would reduce the supply of money in the economy That was the elasticity. Now, of course, that's not what they do today. What the Federal Reserve does today is when the economy is supposedly good and expanding, the money supply is expanding. But then when the economy weakens or actually contracts, they actually expand the money supply even further. So there's no elasticity at all in the money supply. It only goes in one direction, and that's up regardless of what's happening in the economy. The economy is strong, print money. The economy is weak, print even more money. Now, if the people who drafted the Federal Reserve Act, if that's what they claimed the mission was going to be, and if that's how they you know, presented the Federal Reserve to Congress, it never would have passed. I mean, nobody would have been dumb enough back then to pass something so crazy. A, a permanent increase in the money supply, A central bank that was going to be a constant generator of inflation, nobody would have supported that. That would have made the markets far less stable. But that's what they're doing today. And the global central banks are making the same mistake. They're thinking every time there is a problem, the solution is to create more money. Well, you're actually creating a bigger problem by creating money than the one that you're supposedly trying to solve with the creation of money. And the thing is, one of the other reasons... That the US stock market is benefiting from this is the idea that even if the coronavirus comes to the United States and affects us, well, that just means the Fed is going to provide even more stimulus, even more QE. And so it's a win win, right? No matter what happens, we're better off even if we get sick. Based on the virus, well, the Fed's cure is going to be good for the stock market. But in the meantime, there's also this idea out there that, well, you know, the U.S. economy is so strong that we're the one economy that can withstand the virus, that, you know, Europe and Asia, you know, they don't have this economic boom that we're experiencing in the United States. And so because we have this booming economy in America, we're going to be the least impacted by the coronavirus so while the rest of the world is going to be mired in recession because they have weak economies America is going to be this island of growth and so money is flowing into the dollar and money is flowing into U.S. stocks I mean U.S. stocks were down today uh, but not much and globally I mean the U.S. stock market is still up I mean the rest of the world stock markets are going down even in local currencies but of course they're down more uh, in terms of U.S. dollars but the asset that's doing the best is gold, right? Gold now is up 5.5% on the year. We are up another $20 or so today. Gold finished above $1,600. This is the first close that we have gotten above 1600 in many, many years. And we are headed much higher. Now, you know, I've been talking about it on this podcast that the, the bullishness in gold prices is not showing up in gold stocks, in fact, finally, the GDXJ, which is a junior mining index, which was up about 4% today, is finally positive on the year. It's up maybe a quarter of a percent. The GDX, which is an index of senior gold miners, which was up maybe, I think, what, three and a half percent, it's a little bit lesser today than the juniors, but that index is still slightly down on the year despite this big jump in the price of gold. And as big as the price gain is in dollars, it's even bigger in euros and yen and other currencies. In fact, the dollar or gold rather is hitting all-time record highs in those countries. I mean, we're still about $300 off the $1,900 peak uh, that we hit in 2011 in dollars, but we are higher today than we were in 2011 in all the other currencies, And in fact, because gold is rising, even in an environment where the dollar is strengthening against other fiat currencies, that shows you that there is an underlying weakness in the dollar that is right now not being reflected in the Forex markets, but is it being reflected in the gold markets? Because after all... Why are people buying gold more aggressively than they're buying dollars or more aggressively than they're buying U.S. Treasuries? Because they know that things are not as good for the dollar or the U.S. economy as everybody likes to believe. And so more people are seeking out refuge, right? In a, in a better safe haven. And, and that is gold. But the, the gold stock investors still don't get this, right? They still are buying into the false narrative of the booming US economy. Everything is great. There's nothing to worry about. And so they're not buying gold stocks. Now, at some point, there's gonna be an aggressive move in the gold stocks. They did close very nice today. There were many individual stocks up six, seven, eight, nine, ten percent or more. Uh, And there were some very nice closes. I do have a feeling that we could see an explosive move up in the price of gold any day. I mean, so far, it's been a very orderly, slow March higher. We haven't had a big $50 up day or more than that. That's coming. And then we could have a day where the gold stocks are up 10%, 20% in one day. That could very easily happen as investors who have no exposure to this sector try to at least have some exposure. And those that have some exposure try to increase uh, their exposure because they really have been underinvesting in the sector because they have been wedded to this optimistic view of the U.S. economy that is just completely unsupported, you know, by the facts. Now I find it very interesting. Now you've got this debate going on. In fact, I think uh, maybe it started on Twitter. President Obama trying to take credit for the current economic boom that does not even exist, right? So you have Donald Trump and Barack Obama fighting over who gets credit for this booming economy when the U.S. economy is not even booming. In fact, some of the anecdotal evidence that that is clearly not the case, I mean, I was reading some of these articles. One of them is that one third of Americans uh, now run out of money between paychecks. So not only we have all these Americans living paycheck to paycheck, You've got Americans that can't live paycheck to paycheck because their paycheck doesn't give them enough income to make it to the next paycheck. They're running short, which I thought is a startling percentage. Also, on rent, this is kind of a shocker, but better than 25% of American households are spending half their income or more on their rent. I mean, how do you live... If half your income just goes for rent, I mean, what about everything else? You know, there was an old adage, kind of like a rule of thumb, that your rent should be one week's pay, which was basically a little less than a quarter of your income. And, you know, when that old adage was first, uh, you know, invented, nobody paid income taxes, right? Because there was nothing taken out of your pay. Your take-home pay was the same as your pay. But today, a lot of people take home a lot less Uh, than what they earn. So if you're saying you're spending half your income on rent, I mean, I'm wondering if they're even counting what they're paying on taxes. Is it it half their pre-tax or their post-tax income? I mean, obviously, if it's half their pre-tax income, it's even worse because that means they have very little money left over uh, for the rest of their expenses. But the fact that so many people have to work so hard and devote so much of their incomes just to paying their rent that shows you how weak the economy is now reading another article subprime auto loan delinquencies are now at an all-time record high so the delinquencies in these auto loans are higher now than they were at the worst part of the great recession so you know riddle me that batman i mean if the economy is so strong Why are people having a harder time making their car payments than when we had the worst economy since the Great Recession? See, none of that makes sense. In fact, there was an article I just was reading today in the Wall Street Journal about how uh, car dealerships were actually encouraging their customers to stop making their car payments so that the lenders would repossess their cars. Right? And then they would no longer have to make the payments, and so they can go and buy a new car and take out a new loan, which is almost shocking. Because how do you even qualify for a new loan immediately after you default on your prior loan? But I guess in the world of the Federal Reserve and QE, uh, this is how the economy works right now. And you know the reason that the car salesmen are encouraging their customers to default on the loans, right? The money they borrowed to buy the cars in the past is so they can sell them a new car right now because otherwise they don't have any sales because what people used to do in America is you'd buy a car and you would drive it for a while and you'd make your car payments. And then eventually you might trade that car in and buy a newer car. But if you still owe $40,000 on your car and the trade-in value is $25,000, you can't trade in because you are underwater in your car loans. And that is the case for so many Americans who borrowed money because a lot of the people who bought cars on credit were already underwater on their last trade-in, and the dealerships were able to roll the difference into the new loan. And so now they've got these people buried so deep underwater in their car loans that they can never buy another car. I mean, they're stuck in these cars probably for the rest of their lives. So the only way the car dealership can generate another sale from one of these customers is to say, hey, default on that loan, right? Get all of your debt wiped out and then we'll start all over again. You could buy a brand new car uh, and I'll get you a new loan, right? Now, this is what is going on in the U.S. economy. Does this sound like a booming economy? Where the way you generate car sales is to default on the car loans that you can't afford. No, this is a bubble. Right. Nobody should be fighting over who gets credit for this bubble. We should be determining who is at fault, who gets the blame for the bubble. Is it Bush? I mean, is it Obama? Is it Trump? Or is it the Federal Reserve? Right. I mean, the Federal Reserve. I think is the the principal bad actor and should get the lion's share of the blame, but you know what? When the bubble pops, uh, the voters are gonna blame whoever's in charge at the time it popped, that's for sure. So because Trump has claimed all the credit for what is in fact a bubble and not a boom, when the bubble goes pop and it busts, he's gonna get all the blame. And so will the Republicans and so will capitalists. And you know, it doesn't really matter if it busts before or after this election, He's still going to get the blame. I mean, maybe the only chance Trump has of not getting the blame is if the economy doesn't fall apart by November, but Sanders wins, he becomes the next president, and then everything implodes because they're already setting that up. I mean, you hear a lot of these pundits talking now, and they're saying that if Sanders becomes president, the market's going to crash, the economy's going to crash. So that would actually not be a bad outcome To have everything kind of hold together and then Sanders be the fall guy instead of Trump right I mean that would uh, actually be ideal because then we'd have to just get through four years of course Sanders has been saying all along that we don't have a good economy it's all bs so he may be able to say aha this just proves it so you're not going to blame this nonsense on me this was a bubble and I'm you know you're not going to make me the scapegoat uh for your bubble but I think that he's still going to be able to get, you know, a big chunk of his agenda, if not all of his agenda, he won't be able to get. Uh, but I think that the public is going to be ready for a socialist solution to what will be perceived as a free market problem. But, you know, right now, nobody is worried about this. In fact, I saw some guy on uh, on CNBC today, and he was talking about how, you know, the race is probably going to come down to Trump versus Bloomberg, and Bloomberg is now, you know, the second uh, favorite person to win. I think if you look at the betting odds on predicted, Bernie Sanders is almost 50-50. I think he's like 46 cents to win the Democratic nomination, but uh, Bloomberg is not too far behind. I think he's about 34, 35 cents last I looked. Uh, so he's by far number two. So he is the alternative to Bernie. So either we go hard left uh, with, 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 uh, with Sanders or we go center left uh, with uh, with Bloomberg, and in reality, Bloomberg is more middle of the road. He is now, you know, reinventing himself uh, as more of a left wing guy uh, in order to try to coddle favor uh, with the Democrats. And again, this is difficult to do. Uh, because, you know, he has statements in the past where he has opposed the minimum wage. He says raising the minimum wage causes people to lose their jobs. And so he's not in favor of it. I mean, he's a sensible guy. He understood that, but now he has to pretend he doesn't understand that in order to get the votes of the idiots uh, who want a a higher minimum wage. But look, that's not hard. I mean, look, Donald Trump was uh, pro-choice his entire career until he decided to run as a Republican. Then all of a sudden he was pro-life and the Republican voters were fine with that. I mean, they didn't care uh, that he didn't become pro-life until he decided to run for president as a Republican. So I think Democratic voters will be able to accept the fact that uh, Bloomberg was against the minimum wage until he was for it when he decided to run for president as a Democrat. But, you know, that does give an advantage uh, to Sanders. But before I actually get to that, I want to finish my thought on, on what this guy was saying on CBC. What he was saying that was that the markets are not going to care uh, if Bloomberg wins. That's like if it comes down to Bloomberg Trump, that it's a win-win for the markets because either way, these are sensible guys and it's going to be bullish for the market, which I thought was ridiculous because if um, Bloomberg wins, we are going to get higher taxes. He's promising higher taxes. We have massive deficits. We're going to get tax hikes under Bloomberg. Bloomberg. How is that a positive for the stock market, especially if we get higher corporate taxes? He's also proposing a financial transactions tax that can't be good for financial assets like the stock market. Uh, But a lot of the things that he is promising to undo of Donald Trump, uh, the markets were saying, oh, this is why the market's going up because we had these corporate tax cuts. Well, if we unwind some of those tax cuts under Bloomberg, how is that a good thing? But clearly, it's not nearly as bad as having Sanders the nominee, but now I want to get back to the point I started to make about the 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 benefit that that Sanders has in the primary. And by the way, you know we're having the uh, debate, the Nevada debate, because Nevada caucuses are are happening, and on Wednesday is the debate, and Sanders is going to win uh, the Nevada caucus, uh, but Bloomberg is in the debate, and this is the first time he's going to be in a debate, and it'll be interesting, but the. Real benefit, right, that that Sanders has is that he is not like in a foxhole, you know, making a last minute conversion, right? There's an old saying that there are no atheists in foxholes, right? Because once you get in a foxhole and the shells are flying, everybody's praying to God, right? And everybody thinks they might die and they want to go to heaven, and all of a sudden everybody finds God. Well, you know, if you're just making a foxhole conversion, assuming you survived the battle, you know, are you just going to now become a devoutly religious person once you're no longer you know, facing uh, your own mortality like that? No, you're probably going to go back to you know, the way you were. But you know, there are some people that go to church all the time and pray all the time. And so you know, they're, they're going to continue uh, to act that way. And, and so you've got all these guys in this foxhole with Bernie Sanders. And he's been a socialist his whole life. He just didn't make a conversion because it's now convenient based on the circumstances. But you have all these other Democrats in there, like Bloomberg, who is going to have to deal with that problem. And I actually think that now that Bloomberg is so high up, he's almost a front runner. that's going to take some of the heat off of Bernie, because now a lot of people have to beat up on Bloomberg. And beating up on Bloomberg is easier to do because Bloomberg has held some positions in the past that are not very popular with the left wing of the, the Democratic Party. But a bigger problem, and this is something that Sanders really has going for him, and a lot of people seem to underestimate that, is see, Bernie Sanders is the aspirational candidate. He's the candidate that excites and motivates people because he is promising substantive change. He is promising the equivalent of a revolution. Now, it's a bad revolution. It's change for the worse, But his supporters don't know that. They think it's a good thing. And if you look at uh, Bernie Sanders' opponents in the Democratic Party, the ones that are supposedly in the center, the more sensible, Klobuchar, uh, Biden, uh, Buttigiegs, right? These guys are not saying, hey, what Sanders wants to do is nuts. Socialism is bad. These policies are terrible, right all these policies that he's advocating would hurt the economy and would hurt the very people that Sanders wants to help that's not what they're saying what they're saying is we all agree with Bernie Bernie wants to do all this great stuff and we all agree it would be great if we could do it the problem is it's unrealistic to think that we can achieve that that we can't just vote for uh what we want we have to vote for what we can get what we can compromise to something that's more practical so what people are saying is we can't have this great left-wing uh world this utopia that we all want and we all agree with bernie it would be great but we just think that bernie uh can't achieve this and it would be be foolish If, if we came with bernie if we nominated bernie Uh, we would alienate these fools in the middle who aren't enlightened enough to understand how great all the things are that bernie wants to do and since we have all these other people that aren't as smart as we are if we come at them with bernie we're going to lose and we're going to be stuck with trump so in order to beat trump we have to just settle for a little bit of what we want we can't go for all of what we want even though what you know what we want is so great and everything we just have to lower our 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 expectations and you know and and take a safer candidate that's not motivating people see what what um sanders can say is no i'm not going to settle for mediocrity we're not going to compromise this is a revolution we're going to get what we want we're going to take this challenge we're going to rise to the occasion we're going to band together and we're going to succeed and that is what is going to cause more and more people to want to vote for somebody who's promising what they want not promising to settle to get part of what they want because they can't get it all. I mean, Sanders will be like, I will try to get it all. And worst case, you know, we'll take what we can get. But at least we're going to shoot for the moon, maybe. Or we're going to shoot for the stars and maybe we'll have to settle for the moon. But if he's running against people that are saying, well, maybe the best we're going to get is the moon. Well, then what are are they going to deliver? So this Bernie is in a, 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 a unique position. Everybody is underestimating him and to the extent that they think that look they're going to deny him the nomination in a brokered convention I mean we'll see we'll see if they're able to do that but the other thing is that the more I I hear everybody in the mainstream media and everybody on Wall Street just saying that Sanders has no chance the more I hear that the more uh you know of a chance I think he has you know because when everybody is sure, when the conventional wisdom is absolutely positive that something's going to happen or that something's not going to happen, there's a pretty good chance that it's going to happen or the opposite of whatever they think is what's going to happen. Because that's exactly what happened with Trump. And people seem to have very short memory of what things were happening four years ago. Everybody wrote Trump off. He was, it was impossible. There's no way he could win. Again, right, the Democrats were hoping that he'd get the nomination because he was a sure loser. Right? Well, look what happened. Also, before I forget, on the U.S. economy, I, I, I saw a clip of uh, Art Laffer, right? the guy who welched on the bet with me, uh, where he still hasn't paid me his penny. But more important than the penny was the note. He was supposed to send me a note about how wrong he was and apologizing uh, but, um, or congratulating me, whatever was supposed to be on that, on that note. Uh, But he was on Stuart Varney on Fox Business. I mean, Stuart never has me on his show anymore. I used to be on his show years and years ago. Never has me on anymore. But he's got, you know, uh, Art Laffer on because Art Laffer is a cheerleader for Trump. And so if you're a cheerleader for Trump, they'll roll out the red carpet for you. But this guy was making the most idiotic, foolish, and unchallenged statements. I mean, this guy was more wrong By a long shot than he was in 2006 when he was on the Cudlow show with me telling me how great the U.S. economy was and how there was no recession anywhere in sight and there was no housing bubble and everything was great I mean this guy is talking about how great the economy is and the reason he was on there was to argue that Obama didn't deserve any of the credit that this this boom was the Trump boom that Trump deserves all the credit for this greatest economic boom in the history of the world that is unprecedented in world history. This is what this moron is saying, that what we are experiencing now under Trump has never happened before. I mean, I guess he's right. I mean, never has so much been made about so little. I mean, talk about much ado do about nothing. We have all this hoopla. We're talking about how great this boom is and there's nothing happening. The only thing that's booming is the debt. I want to circle back, though, to Friday, because I watched in its entirety the Senate hearing uh, for the nomination of Judy Shelton uh, to be a member of the FOMC. And, you know, Donald Trump has nominated Judy Shelton, and she's probably the best nominee to the FOMC that any president in my memory has ever made. At least that's what I thought until I heard her testimony. But before that, Based on you know, what she had written and what she had said, I thought that she had the best understanding of money and monetary policy and of the Fed and an understanding of monetary history and economics. And so her perspective is uh, you know, badly lacking and, 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 and surely needed on the FOMC. So you know, Trump definitely did the right thing by uh, nominating her. But I, I think the main reason that Trump nominated her is not because he actually wants her to be confirmed. I don't think Trump gives a damn whether she's confirmed or not. I think it was another another political move, right, in order for him to throw some red meat to a portion of his base that likes Shelton, like me, right? So Because if you're a hard money, gold bug type guy, anti-Fed, you would have liked the old Judy Shelton. You wouldn't have liked the Judy Shelton that was up on Capitol Hill testifying, right? But you would have liked the old Judy Shelton. And I think by nominating her, Trump is able to pretend that he shares uh, what she used to believe in. Because more recently, and in fact, the only reason that Trump was willing to appoint her is because she made one of those foxhole conversions to embrace uh, cheap money. And, you know, she was a big critic. If you go back to, 2008 and nine right after the financial crisis i mean she was not out there like me predicting that the financial crisis was coming but once it happened and we got the fed's response she was as big a critic as i was of their response uh shelton was saying you're doing the fed is making a mistake." They shouldn't be slashing rates, they shouldn't be doing QE, this is inflation, this is going to hurt the dollar, this is going to hurt the economy, these are mistakes, we're going to pay for this down the line, they're reflating bubbles, I mean, you name it. She was right on the money. All of her criticisms of the Fed were spot on. And all of the problems that she said would result from the Fed's actions, they're all going to happen. In fact, all of the bad things are going to happen much worse. Than what she originally thought because the fed was able to make the problems much bigger than she thought because the policy was able to continue for much longer than she thought which again was the same mistake that i made i knew what the fed was doing was wrong i just didn't know they'd get away with it for as long as they did and because they did they made all the problems they were pretending to solve worse and so now the day of reckoning Uh, that Judy Shelton knows is coming and has known is coming for a long time, is going to be much worse. So, you know, I was glad that she was nominated and, you know, I was looking forward to the hearing. Now, of course, Judy Shelton wants to be confirmed and she knows that she's got a problem with confirmation because her views are so far outside of the mainstream. But despite the fact that those views are known and out there and there's a long record of, of what she's said and what she's written. Uh, Trump nominated her. Uh, so, you know, maybe she would have just stand firm on principle. Well, that's not what she did. And I hate it when that happens. And, you know, it happens a lot, a lot, you know, when, when somebody gets nominated to the Supreme Court, Right, if they have a, a record of being a strict constructionist, they they understand the Constitution. And they want to apply it. Well, now they have to say yes. But you know, all the unconstitutional laws that are currently on the books. Well, yeah, I would never overturn them. Right. So even though you have a record of saying that a lot of these things are unconstitutional, in order to get confirmed, you have to pretend that you're on board with all that stuff. Well, uh, Shelton kind of did the same thing, by kind of pretending that she now supports all the policies that she once criticized. And she was basically trying to reassure the senators that, oh, don't worry about putting me on the Federal Reserve because I'm just going to do exactly what everybody else does. So instead of, a, of an actual hearing, what we got was an ass kissing. And basically Judy Shelton was kissing the ass of every senator hoping to be confirmed. And I think she made A big mistake because based on my observation first of all of the hearing I don't think she's going to get confirmed I think she looked like a liar and a hypocrite so in addition to having advocated policies that all these guys disagree with they don't think she's honest and that is a problem because she also appears to have changed her mind for political reasons in support of Donald Trump and now people don't want to confirm a political yes man Uh, to enable Donald Trump to take control of the Fed by having people who are doing his bidding on the FOMC. So I think that if Judy's goal was to be confirmed, she would have had a better chance if she had just told the truth. Had she just stood on principle and explained why she has a different view, I think she would have been more confirmable because that would have displayed honesty, integrity, and then it would have showed that, lo, she's just not a yes man for Trump. This is a woman of principle. This is a woman who actually believes and stands for something. And you know what? It couldn't hurt to have a contrarian voice on the Fed because she's only one person, you know, on the FOMC. So all she can do is try to influence the majority of people by pointing things out that they may have overlooked. And so I think a little bit of diversity might have been acceptable. But uh, dishonesty and a lack of integrity and the uh, appearance of partisanship, that has no room. So I think she doomed her own nomination and she actually lost out on a great opportunity because if I was Shelton, I would rather go down on principle. I would rather stand and fight and, and call these guys out. and and tell them exactly what I think of Congress and the Fed and all the mistakes that they've made and say here's what I believe here's what I stand for you want me on the Fed then approve the nomination if not I'll go home but say her piece right put these guys in their place now instead she's rejected everything she's ever stood for everything she's ever done her whole life's work she just tossed it out Why? Just to have a shot of getting on the FOMC to do nothing? Because after all, she would be just one lone voice that would be drowned out uh, by a chorus of idiots. So she had a chance to do something constructive. She had the stage. She had an audience. She could have spoken in front of the world and and, and told people a lot of things that they don't know. And that would have made a bigger difference than just kissing ass uh, for a couple of hours and then not getting the job but i want to you know go back over just you know a few of the things that that she talked about you know one of the things that she mentioned is she said she had studied you know economic history under different monetary systems she says you know because they were trying to criticize her for her prior support of a gold standard and now of course she says no 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 i don't support a gold standard i completely reject the gold standard there'd be no reason to be on a gold standard right after having you know I advocated it for her entire career, all of a sudden she's like, oh, no, 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 that's, that's not me. I don't know. I mean, we don't want a gold standard. But then she tries to claim that the only reason I looked at a gold standard is because I like to study the past and I like to see how the U.S. economy performed under different systems. Yes, and because she studied the past, She knows that while we were on a gold standard, the U.S. economy performed far better than it has since we went off the gold standard. In fact, the best the U.S. economy ever did was when we were on the purest gold standard we ever followed. And that was, you know, basically between the end of the Civil War, uh, when we got rid of the greenbacks, and the beginning of the Federal Reserve, when we got the Federal Reserve notes. But during that period of time, the U.S. economy actually boomed like it's never boomed since or, or before. I mean, we've, that was really the, the type of boom that Donald Trump is pretending we're having now. So yes, I mean, that's what Judy Shelton should have told Congress, that the U.S. economy did much better under a gold standard. So we should go back to it because it works. What we have now doesn't work. But no, she didn't want to defend the gold standard. She wanted to defend the Fed. In fact, it's, it's amazing. She was so afraid of offending any of the senators that she that she refused to stand by anything that she's ever believed in in fact one guy pointed out one of the senators that in her book she had advocated uh for the privatization of some government assets to help reduce the debt and a couple of the things she wanted to privatize was the post office and amtrak all right but so a senator asked her about that and she's no longer for it i mean What's wrong with privatizing Amtrak? It's a disaster. It's a money-losing business. Why can't she defend capitalism? Yes, I think it would be a good idea to privatize Amtrak. I think it would be a good idea to privatize the post office. No, no, no. She had to defend the post office now. She has to defend Amtrak. I mean, nothing. In fact, one of the things that she had criticized in the past was deposit insurance, which, of course, it's a bad idea. It's a terrible thing. I mean, We didn't even have the FDIC deposit insurance until 1933. Uh, but the, the banking system is far less stable now than it was before we had the insurance. In fact, if you look at all the money that was lost in all the banking failures uh, during the Great Depression, it was tiny, tiny compared to how much money you know, we lose today uh, you know, through inflation, uh, you know, just uh, based on the Federal Reserve being there. But we didn't have a lot of money that was actually lost. It was a couple of percent of deposits that ended up getting lost in the in the depression, uh, but this the the uh, FDIC has created a very unstable banking system because of the moral hazard. Judy Shelton knows this, right? Because of deposit insurance, depositors couldn't care less how risky the banks that they put their deposits in are, and the banks know that the depositors couldn't give a damn about how much risk they take, and they know that if they take a bunch of risk and they lose money, they're going to get bailed out. So everybody has an incentive to take risk because then you can have lower fees or a higher interest rate or whatever. So because of deposit insurance, there is far more risk in banking than there would be if there was no insurance, right? I mean, that's that's moral hazard. I mean, that's not a controversial opinion except it was too controversial for judy shelton so she had to completely abandon it and she had to talk about how she loves deposit insurance and how she would never want to get rid of it now other countries have gotten rid of it new zealand had it they got rid of it and their banking system is healthier as a result look you know somebody i one of the senators said well do you think somebody would put their money in a bank if it wasn't insured sure why not they did before they would just do a little research they might buy a consumer reports that rates banks that says hey this is the best bank they got the best balance sheet they make they have the safest loan portfolio look I've got a bank I don't have any FDIC insurance people put money in my bank as they do their homework and they see that we don't make any loans Do we have a clean balance sheet that my bank is sound I mean people could do a little homework I mean people do homework before they buy a cell phone, they do, they, you know, they're spending $1,000 on a cell phone and they, you know, they, they read reviews on the internet. You know, they try to figure out, you know, consumer reports or various, you know, which ones are better. They, they do research before they buy a laptop computer. They do research before uh, they buy a plasma TV or, you know, flat screen TV. They want to know which is the best, which is the best value, which has the best picture. But they do no research whatsoever when they put their money to the bank. They just put the money in whichever bank is closest to their house. I mean, it doesn't matter. Nobody does any research. Who cares? But if there was no FDIC, then they would do the research. It's not hard, <laughs> you know, and we'd have a safe banking system. But instead of saying that, instead of standing up for a simple free market position that she has taken in the past and defended in the past. When she was asked about it, she did a complete 180. Nope, I love deposit insurance. Would never want to get rid of that. What made you have, what gave you that idea? Oh, uh, you did, we read what you wrote, right? Oh, forget about that. Like, believe what I'm saying now. She's basically saying, you're getting the real Judy Shelton now. Whatever I may have written in the past, whatever I may have said in the past, just completely discount that because just believe what I'm saying now. In other words, I was lying back then, but I'm telling the truth now. I mean, she sounds completely unbelievable, hypocritical. I mean, if I was on the Senate, I wouldn't have voted to confirm her. In fact, when they asked her about quantitative easing, because she had been a critic of quantitative easing, right? And of course, Obama was president, which made it look worse for the Democrats. But when Obama was president, she was like, well, quantitative easing was a bad idea. We shouldn't have done it. And so... She was asked, hey, if we have another recession, what are you going to do, right? If the economy turns down, if we had another financial crisis, what would you do? What would you advocate, right? Now, instead of telling the truth, what she has always believed and advocated, she said, well, reluctantly, I would advocate more QE and rate cuts, right? So basically what she's saying is, even though I don't believe it's going to work, Even though I know in my heart it's the wrong thing, I would reluctantly advocate the wrong policy anyway. Why would you do that? I mean, it's one thing to advocate it if you don't know it's wrong, if you're dumb enough to think it's going to work. But if you're smart enough to know it's not going to work, then why advocate it anyway? She's saying she's going to advocate stuff that she knows isn't going to work because it's politically expedient. That's not who we want on the FOMC, but I can't believe that she was saying, yeah, I know I don't think it's the right thing, but I would do it anyway. And then she was asked about the deficits because she was a big critic of the deficits under Obama. She said these budget deficits are a mistake, they're bad. Of course, she was absolutely right. And then she was asked, well, what about the deficits under Trump? Are you gonna criticize those? No. She's, got, she's not criticizing Trump. she just says why well, I don't like deficits. Well what about what's happening on Trump? She won't criticize Trump. so she's afraid to criticize the Fed. she's afraid to criticize Trump. she's afraid uh, to criticize any member of the US Senate. She's just kissing every ass that's there because she wants to be on the FOMC so badly. Why? I would have rather to see her uh, you know take advantage of you know that time and that platform she had to just tell the public, tell the senators the truth Uh, because they don't listen to my podcast, uh, but a lot of them uh, were listening to that hearing.